This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. As we wind down Sashin on this last day, we can try to keep the practice that we're devoted to in Zazen uh, going in other activities or let it spread to uh, activities like like now, listening to a talk. Can we bring the same spirit of Zazen to this event? So if, if we're practicing um, learning the backward step that asks, uh, where is this thought happening? We can do that also outside of formal zazen, of course. Like right now, there's a thought happening. Where is it happening? Particularly if it's a a painful thought, uh, um, a resistant thought, uh, uh, impatient thought. If we catch it, if we notice, we can ask, where is this thought happening? And feel, uh, the spacious presence <coughs> all around the thought, um, kind of come into focus. It's always there. It's, a, it, it doesn't, um, come into or out of being, but, uh, Without asking if it's present, we often overlook it. We just don't notice. <clears throat> We're into content. So we can, we can do such a practice, uh, during sitting meditation, while listening to a talk, during chanting, where is this chanting happening during these Oriyoki meals? What, and thought is just, um, of course, short for any type of experience. <coughs> Thoughts are a dominant one, so I think it's a nice one to ask where the thought is happening. But also, where's the, where is the sight? The colors and shapes that we're seeing, where are they happening? Where is the sound of this voice happening? Where's the sound of the chanting happening? Where's the taste of the rice happening? Where's the smell of the soup happening? <coughs> Where's the bodily sensation in the legs happening? Any experience? Where is it happening? Or Whose experience is it? Is another way of asking the question. What is experiencing this experience? And we might think, well, it's, it's awareness and now this is, I'm having another experience called awareness. So we can, um, make this distinction between experience is an, an event 
for us that um, arises in a particular time and a particular location. <coughs> Maybe that's one definition of experience that we could use is experience isn't is a is a personal event that happens at a particular time and place, like a thought, like a color, like a sound, like a bodily sensation, like an emotion. <clears throat> there are, these are all impermanent. <clears throat> and they all arise due to particular conditions. So all experiences are um, happening in a certain time and place. They're impermanent. They're conditioned or dependent on other factors, which is why um, we're not really in control of them. They're arising dependent on lots of conditions. And, um, and they're not really who we are. They're just stuff arising and ceasing. <coughs> and the Buddha teaches that all experiences even the really blissful ones, are not ultimately satisfying simply because they're temporary. And there's a little, a little knowing voice in the back of our mind that even a, a blissful experience, you know, yeah, but can't we extend it a little longer? Can't we um, hold on to it? And that's why the Buddha teaches that all conditioned experiences are not ultimately satisfying. So, uh, with any experience, a personal event at a particular time and place, we can ask, where is it happening? Or, what is aware of it? And then, uh, thus we, we learn the backward step that, uh, that uh, becomes more interested, more curious about the space in which the experience is happening than the experience. And, and uh, when we when we feel like, why is this practice so hard? It sounds so great, but why don't I do it? <laughs> I, why don't I remember it? Why don't even when I think? It, um, of trying it, I only try it for three seconds, and then I go back to the thought, why is that? We might ask, and uh, we might conclude that it's just because um, we're more interested in the experience than in the space in which it's happening, which is quite reasonable <laughs> to be more interested in experiences because they're, they're happening. We're interested in what's happening, and awareness isn't really happening. It's just like space. <laughs> like space isn't really happening. You come into the Zendo, and, and most people wouldn't be like, wow, this is like, there's some space in here. More like, that's a nice Buddha, that's a nice candle, that's a nice drum, that's a nice bell. How strange it would be to think like, oh yeah, there's some stuff in here, but... What's really interesting is this empty space in which the stuff is appearing. 
We usually don't think that way, right? So, um, I think it's why it's difficult to do this very simple practice of turning the light around and shining it back onto itself. <coughs> so, um, part of the practice could be said to be that we're, we, um, learning how to become more interested in the space of awareness. And maybe one way to become more interested in it is to... um, (coughs) One way would be to hear these stories of the ancestors, and especially Keizan Zenji, who seems really into this kind of practice putting it in many different ways, um, these these Buddhas and ancestors, they seem to be really into this. So even if I'm not, maybe there's something to it because I really respect them. In fact, I revere that these um, Buddhas and ancestors. So um, that makes me curious enough to look more deeply. It's one way we might become more interested. And also, um, just with our own experience, we, <coughs> we try it out and, uh, and notice, pay attention to the shift in experience when we, um, when we start noticing the space in which experiences are happening. That our actual moment to moment experience maybe becomes a little bit more relaxed or we we have a sense of ease like a a cool breeze wafts through the realm of our experience maybe like that if if it is like that then then i think that does help us become more interested ah something about opening into this spacious awareness um is actually a um, a joyful uh, realm, and more and more we can explore how could it be that that this realm of ever present awareness really is uh free from discontent once we can verify that part, then um it becomes naturally much more interesting right This is a key to our to liberation, this is a refuge. But still, our, our habits are strong to be interested in the content of space and the experiences rather than awareness, which we could call experiencing. It's not another experience. We can also watch our tendency to subtly make it into a kind of experience because we're so used to doing that and we're so used to um, focusing on experiences so it's like we might um, open to this have a sense of that awareness really is present now and that it's not located anywhere there might be a verification of that truth and then we might then subtly or not so subtly think yeah, I really feel, I feel the presence of awareness now. 
and it feels um, it feels cool and relaxing. So I could say, strictly speaking, we're kind of a little bit maybe making it into an experience. Maybe it comes with these qualities of cool and relaxing, and then so then we focus on those. So in, in Sashin, where, where the mind becomes more subtle and um, easier to notice the, the subtleties, we can notice, oh, am I, am I, um, focusing more on these, on the almost, um, side effects of the verification of awareness, like, um, relaxation and, um, and brightness or clarity, something like this. Not, not a problem. I mean, if those are there, then we're kind of in the right territory. But keep stepping back. If there's anything to hold on to, just, okay, I got awareness now. Just like hold this clarity, hold this, this peaceful ease right here. Don't lose it. Um, then we're a little bit like, a little bit starting to grasp the, the qualities or the, the, um, the side effects. So, and then, then what? Well, what's aware of, of relaxation? What's aware of clarity? <clears throat> we fall back into the, into that, um, ungraspable space again. We almost can't stand to just rest as ungraspable space as humans. As sentient beings, we want a, at least a little something to hold on to. But we can trust more and more. Sashin is helping us trust more and more that it's okay to just um, rest as open, ungraspable space. It's most it's most freeing when we're not trying to. Um, hold it or maintain it or anything. We know and trust that it's always available. Where is it? We step back and, oh yes, here it is again. It's never, it's never far away. And then bringing this more and more into our, our, um, activities outside of Zazen because soon these long days of Zazen will end very soon, and then hopefully we keep a zazen practice going. Ideally, a daily zazen practice is the best. Um, and we do more sashins when they arise. And uh, <clears throat> But we also then bring this practice into our non-zazen life. That's why this type of zazen is so uh, wonderful, because you don't need to be sitting on a cushion to do it. If the practice is just to follow the breath in the lower belly in this really relaxed way, it's it's almost impossible to do that when even when we're walking, at least if we're walking fast or um, in activities. But this <coughs> stepping back, 
learning the backward step that turns the light of awareness around and shines it back so that our grasped body and mind of themselves can just drop away and our original face uh, can manifest and shine forth. That can be done in, uh, in any activity. But it's hard. It's, it's hard just because we forget and because we're so interested in experience. Slowly learning to be just as interested in experiencing the fact, the simple, boring fact of ordinary experiencing ordinary mind. So, uh, we've been hearing a few bits and pieces of Keizan Zenji's uh, points to keep in mind for Zazen, Zazen Yojinki. You can find the text on the World Wide Web if you're interested. I think on, on my website I have a link to it. <clears throat> it's, it's about ten pages, so there's a lot we didn't talk about. Um, but uh, as as we heard, Kazan begins his, his Zazen instructions with, Zazen means to clarify the mind ground, the ground of mind, and dwell comfortably in your true nature. <coughs> and then ten pages later, he closes the, uh, the Sazen instruction with a, um, with a quote. All throughout, he, he actually quotes some words of his, his, uh, Dharma great-grandfather, Dogen Zenji. But interesting to me that he closes his beautiful treatise with a quote from uh, Zen ancestor Shi Shuang, <clears throat> who uh, is not exactly in in uh, Keizan's lineage, but he's kind of like a a Dharma cousin. He's uh, in the in the lineage of Yaoshan or Yakusan Igen, who is in our lineage. Um, a Dharma grandson of Yaoshan is named Shushuang. And um, <clears throat> so it's, I guess strictly speaking, he's not in the Soto Zen lineage, but he's in it, since he's in a kind of related lineage, the, the Chinese Soto ancestors really resonated with some of his teachings. And uh, he is partly known for um, having, his Zendo was called a, um, a withered tree hall because people just sat there like endlessly, like withered trees, just letting go of anything. Um, <clears throat> we might say, isn't that kind of passive? But uh, we also have a teaching that, like Dogen teaches, uh, based on other ancestors, that there, within a withered tree, there is a dragon howl. So it's not just a dead, lifeless thing, but if we settle, really let go, like a withered tree, 
then naturally there's a lively, creative dragon howl emerging from the withered tree. <coughs> but Shushuang was known as as um, setting up a withered tree hall, and uh, apparently it was like City of Ten Thousand Buddhas. People just never lay down like withered trees don't lay down. They just wither and rot while sitting upright. So this um, end of Keizan Zazen Yujinki is a quote from Shushuang, the, the, the master of the withered tree hall. Um, quoted elsewhere in the records of the ancestors, so Shushuang must have said this more than once. And there, there are a bunch of kind of different images that we could almost visualize ourselves as. So this is Shushuang quoted by Kazan to kind of cap off Kazan's Zazen instructions. Cease and assist, or rest and cease. Be cool. Pass numberless years as this one moment. Be cold ashes, a withered tree, an incense burner in an abandoned temple, a strip of white silk. And then... Kazan just quotes that and then says, This I pray, I pray for this, for all of us. Rest and cease. Be cool. Pass numberless years as this one moment. Be cold ashes after all fires gone, a withered tree, an incense burner in an abandoned temple that's just like sitting there with no fire in it, covered with dust and spider webs, a strip of white silk. <clears throat> strip of white silk, yeah. May be implying that, um, uh, white silk can be written on, calligraphy can be written on it. And, uh, so we might say also, be like a, um, a clean white sheet of paper before anything is written on it. <clears throat> this is a Zazen instruction that, um, my teacher in Japan, the late Tangen Harada Roshi, would often bring up as a Zazen instruction, just make yourself like, be like a clean white sheet of paper before anything is written, but ready for anything to be written on it, allowing that big calligraphy brush full of black ink to just splash down on you. But you're just being the the paper, the, it doesn't itself have any words. It's just the, it's the, it's the pure space on which any words can be written. <coughs> Before the written and after the written. Just don't be the words, be this, be this white piece of paper. The background 
when we're when we're reading a book like this, we're usually interested in these black letters written on the page, and we're really not very interested in the white piece of paper that it's written on. But um, we can be. Look at the space on which the words are written. Because after all, you can't have a book without the white paper. You can't have um, words and thoughts without um, the space for them to happen in. You can't have any experience without awareness. So we are so grateful for the presence of ordinary mind. Without it, we would be nothing there would be no experience. It allows all experience, but we never give it much credit. We just enjoy the experience or hate the experience. We can give it some credit. Thank you, awareness, for allowing everything that's ever happened. The eleventh Indian ancestor of Zen was Punya Yashas, whose name means uh, like splendor of merit or praise of merit. Punya means merit. What's merit? Merit is the is the result of wholesome activity. <clears throat> and uh, the Buddhas teach that um, to be a Buddha, uh, you don't need that much. All you need is um, a complete fulfilling of um, the gathering of understanding or um, gather together awareness just as it is. And also gather together the, the complete fulfillment of merit. It's kind of interesting definition of a Buddha. A Buddha is just the complete fulfillment of non-dual awareness, or jnana, and um, punya, or merit. <coughs> you could say that's the two truths. The, the completeness of of awareness itself, along with the completeness of merit, the results of wholesome activity in the relative world of um, the appearance of self and other beneficial activity. And uh, how does how does a Buddha um, gather? the accumulations of non-dual awareness and merit. It's said that um, that the merit is um, gathered simply through these five practices called um, generosity and uh, ethical conduct and virtuous, harmless activity and patience and 
diligent, enthusiastic um, effort and um, and concentrating the mind in the in present knowing these five paramitas, these five transcendent practices are um, are basically practice that's how one gathers merit is these practices because these are wholesome activity. The result of this wholesome activities of these five paramitas is what gathers merit to make a Buddha. And then there's the six prajna paramita, the um, knowing that's gone beyond <clears throat> the perfection of wisdom gives light unstain the entire world cannot stain her. So that's necessary for a Buddha, but also the gathering of merit. <coughs> so the six paramitas uh, in the Mahayana, many, many uh, Indian ancestors taught, that's all that's needed. We don't need anything special extra. We might, there might be other practices, in fact, hundreds of thousands of them, but... Uh, but all we really need is these six. They can include a lot. But if we, if we, uh, practice these six paramitas, um, that's all that's needed for Buddhahood, complete awakening. So the eleventh ancestor was named, um, Splendor of Merit or Praise of Merit, Punya Yashas, or, um, <clears throat> In Japanese transliteration, Funya Yasha Daiosho. And he stood with folded hands, I'm not sure if that means Shashu, before Venerable Parshva, who never lay down. And Parshva asked him, Where did you come from? And Punya Yasha replied, My mind does not go or come. Sound familiar? Where where are you coming from? This person appearing before me. Well, my mind actually doesn't come or go. And Parshva asked, well, where do you dwell? Where do you live? And Punyasha said, my mind does not Abide or move. My mind does not dwell anywhere. Where do you come from? My mind doesn't come and go. Where do you dwell? My mind doesn't dwell or move. And, uh, and then Parshva asked him, well then, are you kind of unclear or uncertain? And uh, Punyasa said, All the Buddhas are also like this. And uh, <clears throat> Parshva said, well, You are not all Buddhas, and all Buddhas, moreover, are not you. Which we could hear in various ways, but it looks like the way Kazan interprets that is um, um, 
you don't need this extra thing called Buddhas, because you are you. And uh, you don't need to say, all Buddhas are like this, because you are you, and you are not all Buddhas. All Buddhas are not you. So, uh, one of the um, translators makes the point that um, that the way that Kazan uh, uh, writes down the story here, you are not all Buddhas. The Buddhas, moreover, are not you. That the original Chinese um, uh, dento roku, the transmission of the lamp record, says that um, <clears throat> Parshva said, you are not all Buddhas, and then Punyayashas, the next ancestor, said, the Buddhas, moreover, are not you, teacher. So it, the original has it. One of them s- says, you are not all Buddhas, and the other replies, the Buddhas are not you either. So is that just a an a scribal error? <laughs> or did somehow... Were there different versions of the text, or did Kazan purposely um, attribute both halves of that saying to the teacher, Parshva? We'll never know. But maybe we'll just leave it the way that Kazan uh, wrote it down, because um, <clears throat> because he comments on it this way. And either way, I think it doesn't matter so much for the story. <coughs> Parshva said, you are not this thing called all Buddhas. You don't need that. And all Buddhas, moreover, are not you. Hearing this, Punyayashas practiced unremittingly for 21 days and realized patience with regard to the non-origination of things. So he he did a 21-day sashin like they do at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas. Maybe they got that idea from Punyayasha's uh, three seven-day periods. And, um, and at the end of that 21 days of practice, unremitting practice, uh, Punyayashas realized Anutpatika Dharma Kshanti, which is this term, um, Anutpatika means, um, non-arising, or like unborn, Kazan keeps using that word unborn, non-arising, Dharma is like phenomena, or experience, and Shanti is patience. So it's the, the patient, patient acceptance of the non-arising of all things. Which is a, one of these terms the tradition uses for like, Buddhas or great, um, bodhisattvas can realize this. <clears throat> We have to be very patient to accept the fact that nothing happens and nothing has ever happened, that nothing has ever arisen. So to really accept 
that line in the Heart Sutra, all dharmas are marked by, they have the characteristic of emptiness. They neither arise nor cease. We chant it every day, but um, to fully accept that, we have to be very patient. It's a, it's a kind, it's called a kind of patience to, that is fully okay with that radical fact that we maybe don't notice is so radical in the Heart Sutra. All dharmas, they neither arise nor cease. We might have a little resistance to that fact. It might take 21 days of unremitting practice to be that patient to accept that. Yes? So the non-arising, um, the issues of non-arising, it's not referring to the impermanence, right? So material things, not waiting for that. Rather, non, non-arising. Mm, that's right, that's right, yes. You, you could hear it as, um, I'm just waiting for something good to arrive, and it's not. Um, we don't, it wouldn't be like that. It's, it's the patience with the fact that actually nothing has ever arisen. Um, which is kind of the opposite of impermanence. Impermanence is the teaching that all phenomena arise at, at a certain time and then cease at a certain time. That would be my understanding of the Buddhist teaching of impermanence that experiences, I think it's it's interesting to translate dharmas or phenomena as experiences, because it makes it more experiential, rather than some abstract thing that we're thinking about. What we're talking about is experiences, which remember, I find earlier, as, as an event that arises at a certain time and place. <clears throat> so we can call these dharmas or phenomena, or um, events or experiences. <clears throat> and the, the Buddha teaches over and over again that all these experiences, anything, all phenomena, which for us is experience, um, arises and ceases. I mean, that's what impermanence means. So, So this is saying we should be patient with the fact that there's this other teaching that sounds contradictory to the Buddhist teaching that all phenomena are impermanent, <coughs> that they arise and cease. We have to um, um, be patient with the fact that actually phenomena do not arise and cease. It is actually, I would say, contradictory. It's, a, it's the other side of the coin of the teaching of impermanence. And I think it's, it's, the, it's again the two truths. The conventional truth is that all phenomena appear to arise and cease. And the ultimate truth of like the Heart Sutra is that, um, all phenomena, uh, neither arise nor cease. It's kind of the opposite of the, of the conventional teaching of impermanence. Which is why we've been talking a little bit in this session about permanence. It's kind of the opposite of impermanence. But it's a little, even the tradition has a little bit of a hard time saying that there's a realm of permanence. Because <coughs> um, we don't want to grasp anything. But uh, rather than permanence, we can just say unchanging. That, that dharmas 
ultimately speaking, are not changing. They, or as the Heart Sutra says, they don't actually arise and cease. Why? Because there's not um, something to arise or cease. Or from from the point of view of uh, these Buddha nature teachings, the way we've been talking is these thoughts, those are kind of dharma, a kind of experience. <clears throat> they they seem to be arising and ceasing at um, <coughs> around this person at a particular time, right? And then we could ask, um, where are these thoughts happening? They're happening in this empty space of awareness. Well, are they like, um, are these thoughts displacing, displacing a little bit of this empty space of awareness? Are they intruding on the empty space and taking up a little bit of it with their solid thoughtness? No, they're not like that. They don't take up a little bit of empty space and intrude on it, right? They are the empty space of awareness, um, just manifesting as the appearance of a thought. Or, in other words, we can't find the thought other than just the knowing of these words in our mind. They are a kind of knowing, taking the form of thought. The colors that we see are a kind of knowing, taking the form of color. The sounds that we're hearing are the knowing of awareness, taking the form of sound. And that that knowing, the, the nature of that knowing, is just the unchanging, empty expanse of ordinary mind. So um, all this is different ways of talking about the patient acceptance of the non-arising and non-ceasing of all things, of the non-origination of experiences, of the unborn nature of all experience. It's a kind of patience, uh, a kind of... Um, surrender to this ultimate reality. And it might be kind of hard, if we really open to it, it might be actually kind of disturbing to, uh, to, to verify the fact that actually nothing has ever really happened in the, in the universe. Because then like, what's, what's the meaning of my life? My life is all about what's happening moment to moment. If we, if we, open to, actually, I, there isn't a life here. Nothing's ever happened. It's just like, like a, um, like a, a dream where all these events in the dream seem so amazing and wonderful. And then we wake up and like, none of that actually happened. Really. It appeared to happen, but it didn't really happen. But it was such a great dream. I, um, I, I walked all over Austin and enjoyed all the sights of Austin. Now you're saying that it, it didn't even happen? I never even saw Austin? That's right. Can you be patient with the fact 
that you actually never saw, Austin. Well, at least I got to um, to dream like that, right? I got to experience it in a dream. That's right. Well, maybe it's okay. It doesn't have to really happen and really be Austin. If I can dream it, then I can enjoy the dream without grasping the reality of Austin. Okay, you can do that. Okay, now I can be a little more patient with the fact that nothing arises as long as I can enjoy the dreams of arising and ceasing. Maybe this is how um, Punyayasha's was kind of feeling after 21 days of unremitting practice. Okay, nothing's ever happened, but it definitely appears to happen. That's why I can, like, there's this person who appears to be Parshva in front of me, and I can talk with him. It seems to be happening, but I'm I'm really patient with the fact that it's really not happening the way it appears. But it's that line in the Lankavatara Sutra or something like, <clears throat> nothing, I'm not sure, it's something like, Nothing is as it appears, nor is it otherwise. That's pretty good. Can we be patient with such a phrase? Things really aren't the way they appear, but they do appear this way, and they function, apparently function in this way. Emptiness is a really, a really radical teaching if we're really open to the full impact of it. I think it requires a lot of patience. This is another way of saying emptiness. Uh, anut, patika, dharma, kshanti. Um, so, he, uh, Punyasha has realized this, uh, patience with regard to the non origination of things, and then said to Venerable Parshva, uh, if the Buddhas, moreover, are not, then you, teacher, are also not. Um, which is referring back to this, to Puni, to Parshva saying, um, <coughs> you are not all Buddhas, and the Buddhas, moreover, are not you. So, kind of playing with that a little bit. After 21 days, Punyasha says, if the Buddhas, moreover, are not, he leaves off the you, just, they are not, meaning like, there really aren't any Buddhas we can find, then you, teacher, are also not. I can't find you either. I've re- but I'm, pa- I'm patiently accepting the fact that you are not arising and ceasing, teacher. I can't find you. You don't actually exist as a as an entity. So uh, Punyasha said this, and then Parshva acknowledged him and transmitted the true Dharma to him. So that's the story of the meeting of these, of the eleventh and tenth ancestors, and then the story from the Chinese records that Kazan tells is 
the master Punyayashas was from the kingdom of Kashi, which I think is another name of Varanasi. Um, what this translation says, in Magadha, it says, and uh, in parentheses, but I think that, um, I don't think Varanasi is actually in Magadha. Magadha is like the, um, the old name for the, um, like, uh, in India it's now called like, um, Bihar. Like Bodhgaya is in Bihar and I think, um, Varanasi is in Uttar Pradesh. Anyway, there's some confusion about the, uh, where he's really from because the other translation says he's from Pataliputra, which is uh, actually one of those great names of a city in Buddha's time that's still called that in India. This is why it's so wonderful to travel in India because there are these places from... This town has the same name for 2,500 years, right? And the Pali County is still named that. The other names sometimes change. Uh, So he was either from Kashi or Pataliputra. And his family name was Gotama, like the Buddha. And his father was Ratnakaya, or um, Jewel Body. When Venerable Parshva first arrived in Kashi, where uh, Punyayashas lived, he paused beneath a tree, he pointed to the ground with his right hand, and said to the monks, When this ground turns a golden color, a wise man will appear and join our congregation. And as most of these stories say, as soon as he finished saying that, the ground turned a golden color. (laughs) Hmm. At the same time, someone named Punyayashas, the son of a wealthy man, appeared before Parshva and stood in Shashu, as in this case, and uh, they had this dialogue. Or maybe they didn't have a dialogue yet. He just stood in Shashu with folded hands, and Parshva said in a verse, spontaneous verse, Oh, this ground has turned to golden color, showing the appearance of a wise man. He will sit at the tree of awakening, where enlightenment will flower and reach completion. And Punyasas replied in a verse, the master, you, Parshva, sit on the golden earth, always teaching the genuine truth, <coughs> turning the light around to illumine the self, causing entry into samadhi. <coughs> so this, this is, um, in Japanese we have this term, um, eko hensho, uh, that's used um, uh, by the Chinese ancestors. Many, many Chinese ancestors use this term, Eko Hensho, that means literally turning the light around and shining it back. Eko Hensho. And uh, it's, a, I would say, a meditation method, uh, the one that we've been talking about this week. And uh, many Chinese ancestors used it. The phrase was 
this kind of poetic phrase was circulating around China, and Dogen Zengi put it in his Fuganza Zengi, right? Um, ter- learn the backward step that turns the light around and shines it back. Body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will be manifest. So we could hear Dogen's Zazen instructions. That's one way he expresses Zazen, is turn the light around and shine it back. Dogen also says, um, think of not thinking. How do you think of not thinking? Uh, non-thinking. So um, there's many interpretations of this cryptic koan that Dogen put at the center of his Zazen instructions in, in, um, in ancient and modern Japan, there's many interpretations, and in modern America, there's many interpretations, because it's a kind of open, open-handed kind of koan statement. Dogen's explaining Zazen, but he makes us wonder about what he's actually saying. So one interpretation of that Zazen instruction of Dogen that um, that I like, and I didn't make this up, um, but it might not be the the most widespread interpretation. There are definitely other ones, but this is one that Thomas Cleary, his interpretation of Dogen's um, <clears throat> phrase is, think of not thinking. So, um, like our instructions yesterday, a thought arises, and then you can um, you can. Bring this other thought into the mix of your thoughts, the thought in the form of a question. Where is this thought arising? <coughs> and, and, um, which is a little bit like, think of the place where the thought, um, arises, which is called like empty space, right? Which could also be called, this empty space of awareness could also be called not thinking. Because the space doesn't think, right? But you can form this thought of like, well, let me actually think about the space that is not thinking. So that's one interpretation of this line. Think about not think, think of not thinking. Or Thomas Cleary says, looking at the Chinese grammar here, you could translate it as think of that which doesn't think. And if you translate it that way, then Thomas Clear is making a good case for that this is a way to look at it. He's saying it's the same instruction as turn the light around and shine it back in this poetic koan kind of way. Think of what doesn't think. In other words, you form a thought of asking, is awareness present? Awareness is another name for that which doesn't think. Think of it. How do you think of not thinking? How do you think of what doesn't think? You do it like in this way that's beyond thought. When you actually open to it, you start with a thought, but actually opening to it is not just another thought, right? It's actually a direct verification of the fact of awareness being present. That's not really a thought. Think of not thinking how do you actually complete the process? It's beyond thinking. The thought takes you to beyond thinking. 
And then Dogen says, this is the essential art of Zazen. So, as I say, it's one interpretation. Yes? Uh, so, I haven't said this the whole time we've been here, but we didn't talk about what you were going to do here, and yet you keep bringing up things that we were looking at last year. You <laughs> Zazen, you're thinking. Oh, oh. So it's really, it's just, I'm thinking, wow, how amazing it's all. Huh. Kind of coming together. But Lucky I don't remember what I said last year, so <laughs> well, I can repeat it. But the the Cohen France is also mm-hmm. taken up Kazan's instructions. Oh, I saw he was doing that, yes. He had, from years ago, a mm-hmm. series of six lectures that he gave, I think, maybe during a session. Uh-huh. Um, and in one of them, and I don't remember the Japanese, and I don't know whether it's all the same characters or whether mm-hmm. something slipped, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, he talks about the, the thinking, in Japanese at least, is not our usual thinking. Uh-huh. It's a kind of evaluative, measuring sort of thinking. And when he gets to non-thinking, he says it's, that's or beyond thinking. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thinking that doesn't measure and compare. It's, you know, you could say it's boundless. Mm-hmm. It's like empty space. But he looks specifically at the Japanese to kind of unpack this in a way that he says, I didn't, I've never seen anybody else do. Mm-hmm. So just to add that to your mix, I think it sort of comes out of from a different angle, but it's mm-hmm. similar. Sometimes I think that spaceless awareness just gaslighting us. Right? <laughs> nothing, nothing exists. Yeah. Everything is arising and ceasing, but nothing is arising and ceasing. And I want to say, stop gaslighting me. What would the gaslighting be? The gaslighting is like, well, my experience is, and the teaching is, mm-hmm. everything is arising uh-huh. and ceasing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then, there's this voice somewhere else that's mm-hmm. like, no, that's not happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it is liberating, but it's also... It's, it's kind of, seems contradictory to our experience, and so. that's why um, the patience with the non-arising um, is a profound practice. And, um, and they're, they're not contradictory. That's another piece. Um, the appearance of arising and ceasing, and the Buddha's prominent teaching of the impermanence, which means the arising and ceasing of all phenomena, need not be contradictory to this other truth that nothing truly arises and ceases, which is often it's it's taught by like Nagarjuna. There's an ultimate truth and a conventional truth, and they they have two different names, but they're always inseparable, and you can't separate one from the other. So the the appearance, um, well, like the like the dream image, is one that I think kind of works. It really appears to be arising and ceasing. All the laws of causality are operating in the dream, but then stepping back, um, we see that it's all just the the play of mind of one mind that's not divided into subject and object is playing out as subject and object in the dream, and both are true. The, the dream world is a kind is a kind of conventional reality, and it follows laws of cause and effect. And then, from the point of view of the dreamer's one mind, one indivisible mind, none of that is really happening um, in the in the way that we think it is. So, it, as a metaphor, that kind of works. <clears throat> And um, yes, so this this line in the um, the Fukanza Zengi that's that's a quote from Yao Shan, 
um, a Chinese ancestor thinking is um, uh, Shirio and um, she is often translated as thinking but it's um, <laughs> almost like a pattern of mind it, the, the character looks like a like the character for mind with a rice field which is like a sort of pattern of mind and Rio does mean measure measure so um but as a compound it's a common compound for something like thinking is shirio like the the pattern of mind that measures maybe this is what he was referring to and um and um not thinking is fu shirio so um not that um pattern of mind that measures but then um how do you do this non-thinking is he shirio so he mean is another negation like fu but um it like without would maybe be the most common translation of he like without thinking but it is the same shirio um but we do so we how do you do this thinking of not thinking without without that kind of measuring thinking yeah this is probably what he's referring to Mm-hmm. So, people, as I say, interpret this very differently too. Like, um, non-thinking is, is, um, the thinking that inc- the kind of mind that includes thinking and not thinking, for example. So, all these things could be correlated maybe too. But, um. Yes? Yes. It does seem similar, right? Yeah. That, um, yeah, that I don't do it. I think both, both, um, Suzuki Roshi in that story and, um, and Dogen in his story of to carry the self forward and experience or practice and verify things is, um, is delusion. So, um, it's kind of, I think in both cases, it's kind of implying that if I'm, um, making things arise and cease, that's a real delusion. But things, um, coming forth, um, and doing themselves or, or being themselves, uh, at least it's not, it's not a separate self doing them. So it still could be, sound like, Things are arising and ceasing, but it's just, I'm not doing them. That would be one way to hear it. But if we want to take it further, in this case, um, especially with Dogen's, Dogen's line in the Gendo Koan, um, literally it says, to carry yourself, and I think we're talking about your, sm- your small self, forward and practice and verify the myriad things. It's literally what it says. Practice and verification this is this term Dogen uses. To carry yourself forward and practice all these practices and verify these realities is delusion. 
but the myriad things coming forth and practicing and verifying yourself. And in this case, we could, we could understand this self as like your true self. The myriad things coming forth and verifying, practicing and verifying yourself, um, is awakening. And, and if we think of yourself, your true self in this way, is the self that doesn't come and go. The self that's not arising and ceasing. But the myriad things that are arising and ceasing are verifying this non-arising and ceasing self. That would be one way to understand this. So it's interesting that our Genjo Koan translation kind of creatively says, um, the one by Kastanahashi says, um, the myriad things come forth and experience themselves. So it's a little bit kind of non-dual way of, almost like you don't even need to be there. <laughs> Everything is just experiencing itself. Is a kind of wonderful way to put it, but pro- I would guess probably not Dogen's intention because it's this pair. They both have the self in it, and jiko is, means usually like the self of a person. Um, it, it wouldn't be used for like themselves. So um, they carry self forward, practice and verify things, delusion, things. Practicing and verifying self is awakening. So the way that there's this reversal, um, I would maybe translate it as the self or yourself rather than themselves. But again, all this, this, all this Zen, weird Zen talk is very open to interpretation. And each, each, and each way of translating has a slightly different flavor, right? And different, and each has a great, is a great practice instruction in itself. <clears throat> and we might say, well, we shouldn't be making up new stuff, shouldn't we be trying to understand the practice instructions of the Buddhas and ancestors? But in fact, in an evolving tradition, I think it does change creatively, whether by mistake or not. And, um, I think of even, even in the older, older days, when they were trying, when like Kumara Jiva was translating the Lotus Sutra from Sanskrit into Chinese, which are very different languages, he um, did it in an apparently very beautiful way. That in Chinese, there's other translations of the Lotus Sutra into Chinese from hundreds of many centuries ago, but they didn't catch on. Like Kumara Jiva's really caught on. It was very poetic and people loved it. But then when you look at what he, look at, compare the, the Sanskrit to the Chinese, Kumarajiva is making stuff up. <laughs> the popular version is like, um, for example, this like, only a Buddha together with a Buddha can, um, realize the true characteristics of all things. That's not in the Sanskrit. It doesn't say only a Buddha together with a Buddha. It just says only Buddhas like that um, can realize it. So to add a Buddha and a Buddha is like, where did he get that? Why did he do that? And then, like the Chinese Tiantai school took that line and was like, that is super cool. Only a Buddha together with a Buddha. And Dogen wrote a whole essay on it also. 
And um, but then it's like that's not even in the original sutra. That's that's a comment on Kumara Jiva. So um, I think it's cool, even if translations get funky <laughs> and uh, and interpretive, they make new they make new dharma. Anyway, interesting. Um, so. Uh, and this Francis Cook and the other translators are doing that here too. And my mixing together translations makes it my own dharma. It's my own understanding. And it might be not what Kazan intended, but um, so be it. This is this is how it's happening now. Um, <clears throat> so um, we were at this this line. Um, Echo Hensho is this phrase that the Chinese ancestors used to um, talk about this kind of meditation, and the Japanese ancestors used it too, and the Korean ancestors used it too. Um, Chinul, the Korean ancestor, was um, made this a central teaching's echo hensho. In- interpreting it again, uh, well, I think this is maybe everybody interprets in this way of being aware of being aware. Maybe that thinking, not thinking, could be, has is open to interpretation. But I think echo hensho, maybe everybody would understand it like this. So this line in the um, Punyasha said, "The master sits on the golden earth, always teaching the the genuine truth, turning the light around to illuminate the self, causing entry into samadhi." So here the term is. Um, uh, Echo and henga. Instead of echo hensho, it's echo henga. So I, it's consciously, it must be, you know, it knows this phrase, echo hensho. But instead of um, turning the light and shining back, hen means like kind of backward. And uh, here it's henga. Ga means self. And in, again, this is another, this is another, um, example of translation quirkiness in the Fukan Zazengi that I, if you know that, you probably know the San Francisco Zen Center version is, is, uh, translated by Norman Waddell and, and Abe, or a variation on them. And that one says, turn the light around to illuminate yourself. But, Fukan Zazengi says, turn the light around and shine it back. So there's no self in the Japanese text there. That's no, that's Waddell and Abe's interpretation. And we learn it that way. And I, I have no complaints because if we understand your true self in this, as awareness itself, then I think it's, it works nice, but it's not literal. Turn the light around and shine it back. But they say, turn the light around to illuminate yourself. And, um, but this line of Punyasha says, turn the light around and illumine the self. It's echo hen ga. Just coincidentally, the same, almost the same as our Fukan Zazengi. Why ga and not chico? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so, I mean. Sorry, I asked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know Japanese so well, but, but jiko is, seems like almost always used 
for self in general. And when they're talking about big self, <coughs> they um, uh, use G or Jiko, like the self-fulfilling samadhi is G, Jiu, and uh, Jiko is kind of an extension of that. And Ga seems to mostly be used for like small self or even the word I. Um, except for, I mean, um, like the Parinirvana Sutra that we've been talking about this week, when it talks about Buddha nature is the true self, the Atman, that sutra uses the word Ga um, for like true self. So it's not like you can correlate them exactly. Here it's Ga, and um, so Francis Cook in here translates it as um, the light, in parentheses, of his wisdom, the light turns around and illumines me. So that's another, that's Francis Cook's interpretation. The light turns around and illumines me and makes me enter samadhi. See, he's talking to his teacher, um, is talking to Parshva. The master, you, Parshva, sit on the golden earth, always teaching genuine truth. The light of your wisdom turns around and illuminates me and makes me enter samadhi. That's Francis Cook's. Thomas Cleary says, turning the light around to illuminate the self causing entry into samadhi. So I went, I went with the theory one here. Why? Because I like it. Do I decide that I like it? No, not really. It's unconditioned that way. <laughs> to like it. Maybe the God because there's some entering samadhi. It's kind of an illusion. You could hear it that way, yeah. That, um, yeah, there isn't really entering samadhi, but I think he's, I think the verse, however we interpret it, seems to be um, a, pr- a verse of praise rather than critique to his teacher. So, the light of his wisdom turns around and illumines me, making me enter samadhi. You You could hear it. Maybe what you mean is it illumin his wisdom is illuminating my grasping at a separate self. My, it's illuminating my delusion, and it's making me um, drop away so that samadhi's entered. Yeah, it sounds but, like the samadhi was real. Yeah, making. But you could hear it just colloquially, he illuminates me, this conventional person, so I enter samadhi. There's many interpretations here, uh, but it is a it is a variation on the theme of echo hen show because it's echo and hen ga, <coughs> which I think that the Cook translation doesn't really bring out the the fact that it's this classic term uh, and uh, so. Let's say Punyasa said, turning the light around to illuminate the self, causing entry into samadhi. And um, Parshva understood his thoughts 
and uh, ordained him as a monk and gave him the complete precepts. That's how it was in the old days. <laughs> That's how it is in the present day. At least it appears so. All this arising and ceasing. Uh, apparently, with, um, from the perspective of the all-encompassing, unchanging, empty space, um, none of it's really arising and ceasing. Again, like the images on the screen are all um, arising and ceasing, dependent on conditions. <clears throat> but when I look more closely at them, what what are they? What are these images really in their actual nature? They're actually just a screen, this unchanging, one undivided screen is displaying itself as arising and ceasing images. So we don't deny the appearance of these images on the screen, arising and ceasing interdependently according to conditions, impermanent, uh, <clears throat> ultimately unsatisfying images, and, um, and images that are not really ourself. And then we look beneath and we see they're, they're, um, they're the display of the screen. <laughs> and the screen, oh, they're, they're arising and ceasing according to conditions, these images. Some of them pop into view, some of them pop out of view. <laughs> and, uh, but meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, the screen isn't changing at all, is it, right? The screen, um, in this metaphor is, is just the same, is just the same. So, and they're unified. Neither one is, in a way, more true than the other. There's the, there's the conventional truth of appearing, uh, rising and ceasing, appearing, um, impermanent experiences. And then we look at what are these experiences made of? They're just, they're made of the screen. And the screen is um, is not arising and ceasing. The screen as as the as the spacious, boundless, um, uncolored, um, unchanging uh, ground. The ground for all these images to appear. I think a screen. The screen metaphor is um, maybe my favorite because also it, and it really demonstrates um, the inseparability of the two truths, right? Well, let's let's peel these images off the uh, off the screen a little bit. Let's have some images with no screen, no. And then and you could say we can't we have the screen with no images? In this case, we could turn off the. Uh, computer, but um, in the actual, this is just the metaphor, in the actual um, awareness, you could say that um, if we really want to uh, have an, an um, unchanging 
inseparability of these two truths, then we can't have awareness with no images. Some might say, well, what about deep sleep? Maybe it's, it's, um, it's like a radiant light of awareness with no content. So maybe like that. Yes. Um, so maybe we're pushing the metaphor too far, but on the view of the screen and the images, and so like maybe I'm turning the camera on, there's logic there that determines the behavior of the images on the screen. Yes. So if we take that out, and then so so what is kind of orchestrating or or determining the behavior of these appearances? Is that do we call that karma? Is that these karmic strings? Yes. What does it mean to then turn off the screen, to ignore, or to stop, or to freeze? So, so, so yes, um, this is, it's nice to explore the metaphor further here, if we have a little time, which is, um, that, uh, <coughs> yes, you could say that the realm of the images on the screen are, um, arising and ceasing according to laws and, uh, what was the word you used? Karma, karma, and we could say dependent arising. So, so the laws of dependent arising, which include the laws of karma and other non-karmic dependent arising also, um, is the realm of the images, right? And, and usually dependent arising is called the con- a conventional truth. It's true, and it's the realm of convention because it's the realm of, of many things, um, relating with many things, it's it's the realm of multiplicity and diversity. It's uh, um, and it's true. It's conventionally true, and it's the way that conventionally we understand. And it's called also the relative truth, and that's what dependent arising is: is relativity. Everything is relative to everything else. So um, that's the realm of the images, and the laws are like quite specific, right? The laws of dependent arising, the way that the the movie plays out on the screen is um, is not random, right? It's it's it follows very specific laws like gravity. Gravity is a is a dependently arising um, appearance within awareness. I say no. Gravity is more real than awareness. Well, from this perspective, no. Gravity is just another appearance, but it's a very regular law that it follows. We don't just float off the earth on certain days. It's always seems to be functioning, but it's just an interdependent phenomena, but very regular. There's a lot of regularity even in this impermanent world. And uh, what determines it is, yeah, causes and conditions. And karma is a kind of a, a sentient subset of causes and conditions. Right? Like, a, like an earthquake is, is causes and conditions, but it's not really karmic. It's just the earth doing its thing. But our, our action, building a zendo, this zendo is kind of a karmic, karmically created event because humans had to think of doing it and build it. And then, and then the question is, what about when, um, <clears throat> if we turned off the, uh, the movie turned off the computer and it was just an empty screen. What happens to the karma and the causality? So uh, I'm saying that maybe almost always 
it's never turned off. Um, it's, uh, it's the, the two truths are inseparable. But if we're talking about the ultimate truth of awareness, what about the example of a deep, deep, dreamless sleep when there's no content at all? We could say at that time, there isn't any karma, right? Karma is turned off to, and causality is turned off to, um, for this deeply sleeping awareness. There is no cause and effect. There's no arising and ceasing. It's, um, and then there's also meditation states like cessation that are maybe very much like this deep sleep where there's no karma or causation happening. But for most of most situations, including dreaming, um, there is causality. Karma. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I'm not, I think I was also thinking about talking about the Buddha becoming enlightened and ending that Yes, yes. When we, again, when we get into like the Buddhas, the stories get really weird because they, they make the Buddha like this culmination. But I think more practically speaking, um, uh, maybe a Zen version of Buddha would be like the two truths are always inseparable. And so, um, Buddha, um, has no doubt that his true nature is <coughs> simply the unchanging screen. So that's, so why he could even say, I set out to realize the deathless, and I did realize the deathless. I, this, this, this realization is the deathless. And then this eight, this body got to 80 years old and started withering away, and then at some point it stopped breathing, and the Buddhist disciples could say, I thought you realized the deathless. What are you doing, teacher? That looks like death to me. But from the Buddhist point of view, it's like, no, that's just, the the body on the screen playing out its thing. So yes, the body the body dies, but the true nature, the Buddha's true self, is um, deathless. And that's what the way that the Buddha talks in the Parinirvana Sutra too. He says he tells some stories like that. It's interestingly, it's the Parinirvana Sutra. So the sutra is taught on the Buddha's deathbed, and um, and he's saying it. It looks like I enter nirvana and and disappear here, but truly this body is eternal, the the, the Buddha body, and uh, <clears throat> so like that. But while the Buddha is alive, he could say it's the unity of the two truths from a Zen perspective. Uh, I could say there's nothing happening for the Buddha, there's nothing changing, and at the same time, the Buddha can live in this world of. Um, appearances and changing in order to benefit beings there. Putting aside the Buddha, I think we can definitely tell that story about the bodhisattvas on these ten stages of the Buddhahood. They're the ones, even in the tradition, they say, they have a foot in both worlds. And the, the Buddhist things get weird. It's almost like they take their foot out of the conventional world. That's why we have these things like, then there's the the transformation body in your monokaya is not really like a person. It's not, it's not really conventional truth, but it appears due to the aspirations of, of practitioners. These kind of things get really weird. But I think the bodhisattvas, it's easier to understand that, um, they realize the, the two truths simultaneously.
you first, when I first heard you talk about the screen, which is a long time ago. Yeah, that one's, that one's getting a lot of mileage. Yeah, <laughs> but it seems very different today because you're pointing to that computer screen. Yeah, it is one. I thought of the screen <laughs> as the uh, unchanging, the unchanging. Yes, unborn. yes. And so That's it never goes away, and now you're, you're talking about going away. No, we were talking about the images going away. Like the screen. Well, we shouldn't say turn the screen off. Yeah, but turning the computer off, when we turn the computer off, the screen doesn't go anywhere, right? But the images, the images, we we should use our language carefully. We mean turn off the, the display, the displayed images, and then you just have a, uh, a screen that hasn't changed. The screen, when you turn off the images, this screen would be exactly the same um, as when there's images on it, right? That's the beauty of the metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kazan wasn't able to dig up any weird stuff about Funamita. He seems like a normal person. (laughs) 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 Well, I see. Yeah, he's pretty normal, huh? I mean, um, he did was able to create the the golden ground on the earth as soon as he walked up. So it was almost like a miracle. And his teacher knew that he would do that before he did it. So, got to have a little bit of magic in ancient India. So, thank you for... um, I thought there maybe wouldn't be anything to talk about today. (laughs) 